one. All right, Perry, I always like asking this question first. You can take it in whatever direction you'd like. When you think back to your childhood, uh, hobbies, interests, influences, uh, what are the things that stand out to you? Oh, geez. <laughs> That's a good question. Never had that one before. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know my father's work ethic, maybe, and uh, uh, the love I had for all sports growing up. I was kind of uh, vertically challenged, and so that kind of uh, narrowed my choices as I got older. But I would say uh, my father's work ethic and, and my love of sports. Oh. What drew you specifically to baseball? Obviously, it's a sport where you don't need to be 6'6 to play, but what was it about baseball that really kind of piqued your interest? Uh, I think it was the, uh, of course, you can say this for all sports, but, uh, you know, it was a, it's the team concept of, and, uh, you know, just working together, you know, what it takes. Uh, you know, I grew up in a different era, and, you know, now it's kind of the uh, launch angle home run thing. But when I was growing up, you know, up, well, all of us up till about, what, 10 years ago were, you know, about how to uh, play defense and keep the other team from scoring and, and manufacture runs, you know, by getting on base, you know, a uh, hit and run or a stolen base and getting him over and driving him in. So I think it was the, the whole concept of everybody pulling together as a team and, and, and working to, you know, to score a run or prevent a run. Perry, what a, as far as you mentioned your father's work ethic, I imagine you're saying that because he had a strong work ethic, but were there any specific examples, things that he did or things that he taught you along the lines of having a, a great work ethic or what it means to, to have a great work ethic? Well, if you don't have a good work ethic, whatever you do, you're not going to be doing it very long. You know, if you don't, uh, if you don't apply yourself and, and, uh, and I, and I remember he always taught me that, you know, you want the job, you want a job you love. You can't wait to, you know, to wake up and go to your jobs. It's almost like it wasn't a job. So whatever field that you decide to go into, <clears throat> make sure that it's one of those that when you wake up in the morning, you're not dreading going to it for the next eight or 10 hours. All right. I got to ask you, how did you get your nickname bone? <laughs> Uh, long story short is, uh, uh, I, I used to, uh, uh, have uh, eat fried chicken and just carry a bone with me after I ate it as a kid, you know, as a, as a, as a, uh, uh, like the, the, the drumstick or the chicken leg, I would just hold on to it for some reason. And it just, it's just kind of, kind of stuck from there. Like you'd hold on to it like a, as a toothpick or like you'd put it in your pocket or. <laughs> Just, I just kind of held on to it for a while. I don't know why. <laughs> I really don't. I really don't. I don't have an answer for you. All right. So I, I think you spent some time playing in the Mexican League, and we know so much about playing domestically uh, in the major leagues. What was your experience like in the Mexican League, where I know they're obviously really passionate about their baseball? <clears throat> yeah, well, I, uh, <clears throat> I unfortunately had a – few uh, leg injuries and I, and I, you know, I didn't get a chance to, <clears throat> to play here. Uh, I, I played independent ball one year. I tried to uh, show everybody that I was healthy and I played independent ball. Then I, I, I hurt my left leg again. I've had like six or seven surgeries on it. So, you know, I really didn't have much choice. And so I just wanted to play. I didn't really care at that point where it was. And so I had an opportunity to go down there and play and and it was a little different back then. Uh, you know, now I see some of the parks and they're, they're just gorgeous. 
uh, back then they, uh, you know, it was, a, it was, a, it was a little rough go at times, but, um, you know, what it turned out to be, uh, Jerry is a blessing in disguise because when I went down there, I knew that I didn't want to spend the rest of my life, you know, playing down there. It gave me an opportunity to play. And it, what it also did is it, it gave me an opportunity to, to develop my philosophy and beliefs. And that's when I developed my infield program, uh, knowing that at some point in time, I would want to coach. So, uh, you know, it, things kind of turn out in a, you know, a weird way. And, you know, maybe I had some, some injuries that were destined to point me down there to where I'd have the free time and extra time. Cause I was by myself a lot to, uh, to devise and come up with a program and, uh, you know, it, it worked out in the long run. So I want to get to that program uh, in a second, but as far as the the coaching and the teaching, which I know you're you're passionate about the teaching side of it, as as a lot of coaches are, the especially the good coaches. Who were some of your influences from a teaching standpoint and, and a coaching standpoint? Well, <clears throat> my two uh, my two guys uh, are, are former Rangers, uh, Toby Hera and Buddy Bell, and. Uh, you know, Toby gave me my first shot, you know, to coach in the big leagues. And um, uh, toward the end of Buddy's career, he was he was with the Rangers. I was a roving instructor at the time and, you know, built a kind of a relationship with Buddy. And um, when when Buddy got the job in Detroit, then he called me and, and, and offered me a job with the Tigers. And that's basically how I uh, left the Rangers organization. But um, Toby gave me my first shot. Toby was a... Uh, the manager in AAA Oklahoma city when I was a roving instructor. And as I like come into town and work with the players, I, you know, I kind of fooled Toby, I guess. And, uh, when he, uh, replaced Bobby, uh, Valentine as the manager in 1992, uh, obviously he became the manager and they needed a, uh, needed an extra coach. And so, uh, that's when Toby called me off the road from roving and, uh, gave me my first big league job. And, uh, when I was, uh, my relationship with buddy, uh, happened when we were working together in spring training, I was invited to, to spring training camp and, and, uh, uh, buddy was there and we developed a relationship and he kind of liked the things that I, I taught. And, uh, he asked me one day if I ever became a big league manager, I'd, I'd like to have you as my intel coach. And of course I, I was, yes, obviously, because at the time I was in the minor leagues. And so, uh, uh, true to his word, uh, in 1997, he got the uh, Detroit Tigers manager job, and he called me just like he said he would. This conversation we had about that was like six, seven years previously. And uh, and he did exactly what he said he was going to do. He got the job with the Tigers and called me and really made me an offer I couldn't refuse, and, and uh, off to Detroit I went. But uh, uh, Toby and Buddy were big influences on me, uh, you know, how, how to uh, – how to, conduct myself as a, as a pro and, 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 uh, groom me as a coach and, uh, gave me opportunities. So you mentioned your, your infield program and you are renowned in your ability to develop infielders and, and we'll get into, uh, some of that, but you've got the, the six F's of fielding. Uh, I guess what was, what more can you share with me about kind of the evolution of your understanding of, of what, makes a great infielder and how to teach it and, and how you came up with the, you know, your, your six F's of fielding and, and just, I guess, sort of how it all was born. Well, I'm not the sharpest tack in the box, so 
I needed I needed something to teach that I thought would be uh, simple. Uh, I think there's uh, there's value in simplicity. Uh, I I remember as when I was growing up and, and coaches would would you know give me like four or five things on four or five different skills like you know when you break down the field of ground ball is get your hands out front get your back flat get your butt down you know and and you're trying to think of these three things uh all at the same time while a ground ball is coming at you you know like 90 miles an hour and you're and i just you know as i was growing up and 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 uh getting acclimated to all this i just thought you know there's got to be an easier way and without all this thinking and so um my time in Mexico, I, I, I said, I have to come up with something that in the middle of a game, if something goes wrong, I don't have to sit with a player on the bench and have a, a five-minute lecture because the game's hard enough to play as it is without sitting down and having a coach talk to you for five minutes in between innings you know, about this and that and giving you all these uh, bullet points to think about. And so I just came up with the idea of, uh, you know, that fielding starts with an F. If I could get six – six or seven trigger words, if I could just say one word that would trigger the thought of all those different things together, you know, and just say it to him as I was passing by, uh, it would it'd make it a whole lot easier, you know, a whole lot simpler. So I came up with, you know, everything starting with an F. And, and when I had said the one word, the trigger word, it would, it would, all, it would line all those other things up in his head. And, you know, and conversation is like five seconds instead of five minutes. And um, teaching it, you know, you, you, you kind of break things down and, and, and you walk through it. But, you know, once you walk through it and you show the whys and the wherefores and, and, and the reasonings uh, and the reasons behind it, um, it, it sinks into their head. So, but you give it that one word, that trigger word, and it, it cuts out a lot of unnecessary talk and a, a lot of unnecessary conversations that you really don't need in the course of a game. Perry, what I guess when you started to develop that, uh, you know, I, you, you mentioned earlier the, the games evolved. Are there things that you really believed in when you first started developing your understanding of, of coaching infield that now you, I don't want to say you don't believe in it all, but it's just not a part of the program that you teach? Or are you pretty much able to? to teach the same things now that you were teaching then? Yeah, I think the basics of, um, you know, a fielding the ground ball are basically the same, Jerry. Uh, you know, you never want to, you know, clone everything and make everybody a robot. But the example I use is that, you know, you can look at all the different skylines in the country, like Miami, Dallas, uh, L.A., New York, Seattle, Chicago, you know, you got all these big fancy buildings and the glass and some with the steeples on them and some pyramid shaped. And I mean, they're just all beautiful, different shapes and sizes, but all of them have one thing in common. And that thing they have in common is basically the same thing. It's built the same way on all those buildings is the foundation, you know, the rebar wire, the, the, the concrete, you know, all the things that go into it are basically the same on every building. So <clears throat> My theory is that I teach the six Fs, the basic fundamentals, step-by-step, what to do on fielding a ground ball, and that lays the foundation. You let the player evolve, and he can tweak things as he goes, you know, to make his own style, but 
if something ever goes wrong, and you can get into a fielding and throwing slump just like you can a hitting slump. And if something goes wrong, then you've always got that foundation to go to and go right back to your basic fundamentals and, and get fixed in a hurry. Uh, guys who come up with their own, you know, they're hopping, they're skipping, they're jumping, and they're flipping balls underhanded, you know, and flicking the ball. When, when those kind of players go into uh, some sort of funk, where do you go to fix that? And I think it's really hard, and I think that's why some guys who don't have a structure or a foundation, when they go into a, 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 the thing throwing the ball, they, they, they lose the feel of how to throw or, they, or they, they lose the feel of actually catching the ball, you have nothing to go to to, to fix it. It's like making a trip that you don't know where you're going without a map, without a GPS. You know, you just kind of wander around and hope it'll happen, and sometimes it doesn't. So I'm a, I'm a firm believer, and what I do is I teach the six Fs to my infielders, and then I I tell them that reason, just what I explained to you, and and they can go and, and create and, and do their thing and, and tweak it and, and be their own person. But if something goes wrong, then we have something to go back to and fix it and fix it in a hurry. Have you? I imagine you have uh, over the course of your coaching career dealt with someone who has. Uh, how to challenge the yips and 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 whatever that means, but you know I know it's something that has fascinated uh, psychologists and and or psychiatrists and how to overcome that. But have you had that challenge as a coach to help a player through that? Well, I've had a few guys that you know uh, you know would have you know like made an error that you know cost a few runs or even a, a game at times and. And, and they just, you know, they can't, they can't get it out of their head. And the next day they're afraid to throw the ball. They start pushing it or, you know, really kind of babying the throw. And uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not a fun thing. You know, I, I'm by no means uh, somebody to analyze what's in somebody's head. But um, a lot of times you just have to, you just have to get out there and you continue the, the, continue to work in the same program and really try not to mention it a whole lot and, and, and just let the guy play. Um, I, I, you know, if you, you start thinking about, okay, let's do this drill or let's do that drill. You know, that all that does is just reinforces that negative. He, then he can't get that throw out of his head or whatever started that, uh, the downward spiral of his throwing. But I, you know, I, I would like to just kind of like let it go and, and see if it, kind of fixes itself over the course of a couple of days uh, without introducing a bunch of things to, you know, to get in his head and where he can't, where he can't, you know, flush that bad throw out of his head. But I've been fortunate. I really haven't had a guy who really had to change positions or um, uh, do something drastic because he had one of those problems. So I know they exist. I've been lucky. I've had really, really good players uh, most places I've been, and I really hadn't had to, to run into that. You know, you, you mentioned changing positions and I think some people believe that if there's a guy who's got a great bat and the DH spot isn't open, maybe you can just make him a first baseman. And, uh, you know, it's almost said with the assumption that anyone can stand on the bag and catch a throw. But, uh, you know, I know in Texas recently we've had guys like 
uh, Mitch Moreland and and Mark Teixeira, who are really, really strong at that position. And when you have someone like that, you realize what sort of a difference it can make. And you can't just, I guess, make anyone a first baseman. Uh, what are some of the challenges to that position uh, when you are teaching someone first base that, that you have to deal with and, and maybe takes a little longer to adjust to for that athlete? Well, first of all, the value of a really good first baseman makes your other three infielders that much better because they're not afraid to take uh, chances. Uh, you know, I'm not talking about, you know, the routine ground ball hit right at them. I'm talking about that they range far to their left and they spin around and they make a throw or they dive in the hole, they get up on a knee and throw it because the confidence they have that knowing that that ball is going to be caught. Uh, and so I, I think that uh, over the years I've been blessed. I've had a lot of good first baseman. I had Rafael Palmero in Texas. I had Will Clark, Derek Lee. In Miami, when we won the World Series in those years, he, uh, I've had some really, really good first basemen. And what it's done is it makes the other infielders not afraid to go an, an extra, you know, an extra step to, to make a play and make a throw. So <clears throat> those kind of guys are invaluable. Um, Lee Stevens is another one. I don't want to leave, leave, uh, leave out Lee. But, um, the other thing is it's not that easy to play, as most people think. If you're a right-handed first baseman, you're, you have so many things you have to do differently with your feet to get your body turned to make a throw to second base. You know, if you're left-handed, you're already lined up to throw it. It's a little easier for a left-hander to learn the position. But a right-hander has to, has to learn to reverse spin, has to learn a, a lot of using his backhand a lot. And, um, you know, you have to you – know, for a left-handed pitcher, the guy gets picked off. You have to go get the ball, have to uh, move your feet to make that throw to second, like the first move with a left-handed pitcher on a stolen base. You know, and a lot of other things that you don't realize is you're holding that runner on, and you got that big pull left-handed hitter at the plate. I mean, you're really close to home plate. Uh, so, I mean, there's there's a there's a lot of things. Uh, you know, you're involved in uh, you know the cutoff and relays, certain places you have to be, and certain decisions you have to make. Uh, bunt plays, uh, you know, throws from the pitcher on pickoffs are really, you know, probably 50-50 sometimes. You know, you don't know where they're going. you got to pick the ball. you got to block the ball. Uh, so, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that goes on at first pace. You know, it's just not run over there and put your foot on the white thing. I, Random, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, first base is the only infield position where you have some left-handed throwers and some right-handed throwers, catcher, uh, second base, shortstop, third base, all righties. And I guess if you want to throw pitchers in there, of course, you're going to have some lefties and righties. Uh, do you ever see a day where maybe we'd see a left-handed thrower play an infield position other than first base? Or is the, the, the value of a millisecond in, you know, at the major league level, just so important that, uh, it just, it, it would be too tough to accomplish. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, you would, the angles you would have to throw or, you know, you have to, you really have to spin like on certain balls, you know, like a double play ball. You, most balls, if you get third baseman, if you had to go to your right, to your glove side, you'd have to reverse spin a lot, make throws. And I just don't think it's probably feasible. You know, Mike Squires, I believe played third base for the White Sox, uh, uh, a couple of times, and uh, Don Mattingly, I know, played third base for the Yankees uh, one inning. 
I think it was, I can't remember the game situation, but it was a crucial situation. And they had two or three dead pull right-handed hitters coming up and they put Donnie over there at third base because they knew he would catch the ball. And I can't remember, I know a ball was hit to him and I I know he threw the guy out, but um, I just think that it's, uh, you know, the angles are just too, too much. I mean, you think of a runner on first, a double play ball hit right at the, at the third baseman left-handed how he would have to really turn his whole body around to get that throw to second base. And what you just said, you know, those, 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 uh, those are precious movements and precious seconds that uh, you really don't have time to do for the right-hander set up to make all those throws. Perry, one of the reasons why you're so highly regarded uh, is because you have a track record of success and you have instructed uh, gold glove award winners at, at each infield position. And I know that, People like yourself with your makeup, you're going to say, well, it's the the fielder. Uh, they're the one who deserves the credit. But is there a particular player who won a gold glove uh, that you had an impact on who, who, when you saw that person, just wasn't anywhere near a gold glove infielder that, you know, you whether you want to take the credit or not, you saw some significant growth in that player's development defensively? Uh, well... If I gave you the names of guys that won the gold glove, they were all good players. You know, I, I really didn't have a whole lot to do with it. But the the guy that kind of sticks out is is D. Gordon because uh, he he was a shortstop with the Dodgers, and the Dodgers moved him to second base um, at the uh, one year. But we traded for him and uh, in Miami, and he hadn't play, he hadn't been playing second base that long, and so he knew what to do. He knew how to do it. It was just the fact that he needed repetitions, and I just happened to be the guy that was the infield coach that you know put him through repetitions. But if you know D. Gordon, uh, he could have—I think he had D. One scholarships in basketball, and he was quite an athlete. So um, all the guys who won gold gloves for me probably would have won gold gloves whether I was there or not. But uh, D. Gordon is the guy that comes to, to mind to your question, just because he had a position change, but he was such a good athlete that, you know, as soon as he got his repetitions and, and, you know, by the time spring training was over that one year, which is, you know, six weeks long, it looked like he'd been playing there all his life. And of course he won a gold glove. Okay. Now when you consider guys who maybe didn't win gold gloves and, and there are a lot of great defensive players who go their entire career without winning one. Uh, and, and maybe it's not even someone you'd characterize as a great defensive player, but someone who at one point was horrendous and, and just became average or above average. Is there a, a success story in addition to D Gordon that really jumps out at you that, you know, you really had to work extra hard with this guy to help him with his willingness grow as a defensive player? Well, um, one of the best shortstops I've ever had was Alex Gonzalez, who was uh, our shortstop on the 2003 World Championship team in Miami. Um, he had just—he uh, was always a great athlete, like his double play partner Louis Castillo. But uh, Gonzo had, had sometimes gotten away of himself, and he—and he his he, his footwork would be different. I mean, you could hit him the same ground ball ten times, and he'd do t- ten different things with his feet. And so, although he was a great athlete. And uh, and a, a, a great player, all around player, could do almost anything. Um, he just had just one thing, you know. He had to straighten out. He had to learn that he threw with his feet. If your feet aren't lined up properly, your arm's going to drop and come to different angles, and you're going to lose velocity. The ball's going to tail. It's going to sink. 
because you're under the ball or on the side of the ball instead of on behind the ball. And he, he didn't realize that his feet controlled all that. And so once he learned that his feet controlled his arm, that his lower body made his upper body, his arm, you know, better, more efficient, then he took off. And he was probably, in my opinion, one of the best shortstops in the National League for four or five years. You know, he just he just just never was fortunate enough to win a Gold Glove, but he certainly could have. And I, I had a second baseman in Detroit, Damian Easley, who came over from the from the Anaheim uh, California Angels at the time. He was a shortstop, and uh, uh, we, he was moved to second base. And he was always a good player, but the brunt of the story is sometimes you're at the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, one year he went 99 consecutive games without making an error and only made like three for the whole year and didn't win the gold glove because uh, there was a guy in Cleveland that year named Roberto Alomar that was in the <laughs> same league. That was in the same league. And so, you know, uh, you know, a lot of times guys deserve to win those kind of awards, but uh, it just doesn't work out. You know, somebody has a, a you know, a better reputation or a better year and, and it, it's a shame, but sometimes those things just happen. All right. Uh, you know, one of the best defensive players that has come through Texas is Adrian Beltre. I, I'm curious, you know, from your evaluation, what made Adrian so special uh, as a defensive third baseman? Consistency. I mean, once he went out there, you knew what you're going to get. You know, he was going to get in front of balls. Uh, he had a great uh, first step, had great angles, would cut balls off in front of the shortstop, and, and a tremendous accurate throwing arm. You know, I don't ever remember the games. You know, I, I wasn't ever, always, uh, you know, always, I wasn't ever on the same team. I was in an opposing dugout, so I didn't get to see him but maybe, you know, five or six, seven, eight games a year. But I never saw him make a bad throw. I'm sure he did at some point in time, but I never saw it. And so, you know, I just think the consistency, knowing when you put a guy out there, if the ball's hit to him, you don't have to worry. It's day in and day out. You know, that's, that's, that's comforting not only to a coaching staff, but, you know, a pitching staff. You know, they throw the ball over the plate, put the ball in play, knowing it's going to be caught and it's going to be thrown across the diamond accurately and the guy's going to be out. You know, it keeps pitch counts down, enables you to stay in the game longer, it doesn't tax your bullpen. You know, it, it all kind of works together. And, 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 and players like Adrian are, are vital to a team. All right, so I need you to tell me, I think it was in Atlanta. I believe it was in Atlanta the day you decided to turn to lettuce uh, to help you stay cool. What, what, uh, what, what do you remember about that? <laughs> uh, I just, it, was, it was like a 220 degrees that day. It was an afternoon game in Atlanta, Sunday afternoon game, and it was hot. And uh, so we were talking in the clubhouse, how in the world are we going to keep cool? Well, I don't have any hair. So the guys with hair, they, they had a way to stop the sweat, you know, from getting in their eyes and running down their face. And I didn't. So we were talking about, you know, we all had read the story where Babe Ruth used to put a piece of cabbage under his hat when he went out in the field. And I said, you know what? I'm going to try that. So uh, in Miami, we were, our colors were black. So it was, I mean, it was hot, hot. And um, we had black uniforms and black helmets. You know, coaches have to wear helmets on the bases. So I had that black helmet, and that sun was just beating down there and just frying my head. So I sent the uh, clubhouse kid up to the kitchen uh, in between by the first inning, and they didn't have any cabbage, but they had lettuce. 
And I said, bring me a couple of sheets of lettuce, a couple of things of lettuce. So I brought them down and I, I, I just put them in my helmet. The mistake I made, Jerry, was that I, an inning was over one inning and I started out of the dugout and I forgot my helmet. I just had my hat on, my cap on. So I had to run back and get my helmet. I was running a little bit late. So I was putting my, I took the lettuce out of the cooler and I was putting it in my helmet as I got close to the dugout steps. Well, then one of the reporters that ran the camera well and the camera saw me do it. Had I just done it like I did the previous innings over there on the bench, nobody would have ever known. But I made the mistake. I was running late that inning. And I, as I was putting a piece of lettuce in, as I was going up the dugout steps, and, and that's what allowed the, a camera to catch me. And then I had to answer questions about that. But that was, uh, it, it worked for a while. It worked for a couple of innings. <laughs> I ran out of lettuce. You got to be creative, right? Yeah, it worked for me. Uh, last thing, Perry, you, you mentioned your, your time with the Rangers. Is there a particular story or memory of your time coaching uh, in the Rangers organization that really jumps out? Oh, geez. There's a bunch of them. Um, there's a bunch of them. Uh, I was there, uh, you know, I, I was there for Nolan's last start in Seattle, last pitch that he ever threw. And I had the, the pleasure of watching him for a couple of years, pitch every fourth day. Well, that was a, a blessing. And what a, you're talking about a competitor. Wow. Uh, so that was a, a blessing. You know, I, I was there. I think yesterday was the anniversary of the ball hitting off Jose's head and over the wall in Cleveland. You know, I, I was there for that one. I was there for when Jose pitched in Boston and uh, uh, hurt his arm. Uh, I, I watched Juan Gonzalez win home run championships and win silver sluggers. I watched Pudge win gold gloves. Um, I was there when, uh, Robin Ventura charged Nolan Ryan. I was there, you know, coaching on the staff. So, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of, lot of, lot of memories. Uh, 94, we were in first place when the strike hit, you know, who knows way back in 94, we might've, uh, you know, been the first playoff team, but the strike hit and then the, the season was over. So yeah, there's a, there's, there's a few of them. I was very fortunate to be there.